First of all, we have men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. Some of you guys need to come out for the men's prayer breakfast. Uh, that's an important time for the men in the church. Second, Scott Stripling will be here two weeks from tonight. So today is the, what, 14th? So he'll be here on the night of the 28th. And I encourage a good turnout. Y'all should come. Uh, he's going to talk about the Shiloh excavations. And if you remember when um, Aaron Lipkin was here in July and he talked about Joshua's altar, remember at the end he talked about uh, going, uh, taking Scott to uh, Joshua's altar, and Scott's the one who took all the detritus from one of the three piles from the from the excavation because they can't do any more excavation there, and that's when they they sifted it, and that's when they found uh, that little um, uh, curse tablet, and so he's going to talk about all of those things, give us updates on the uh, the latest. We did, you know, he couldn't even give us a summary of everything they'd found this last season when we were in Israel. So this is going to be a tremendous, he's a tremendous speaker, got a great presentation, and I encourage you to be here. This is cutting-edge uh, information that is very important. And so I mentioned it Sunday that the Palest- the Arabs are trying to um, destroy Joshua's altar and put in a subdivision there, which is causing a lot of a trauma in Israel right now, so they're going to try to put a stop to that, which legally they can. That's a violation of of, of all their treaties. So that's going on. And then um, then uh, there's the Fort Bend County Fair evangelism event, signing up for that and going through the training. Then three weeks from tonight, Mitch Glazer uh, from Chosen People Ministries will be here on Thursday, October the 5th. And I, I'm, I haven't talked to him about what he's going to cover, but I, I'm going to talk to him about doing something on on um, Jewish evangelism. And then um, there's the evangelism and apologetic seminar. So a lot coming up. And it's just going to be, <coughs> excuse me, just going to be tremendous. So it's, uh, it's great that we can do all of these kinds of things, all part of equipping the saints to do the work of, of ministry. Um, there was one other thing. David Dunn, I did not get an update today that mostly they're just letting him recover from the things that happened uh, yesterday and the day before, uh, regaining strength and uh, and resting and sleeping. So that is going on. And then there is this film that's coming out that's going to be on. We sent out an announcement yesterday. It's It's going to be at a number of theaters around Houston, and it's called Route 60, I believe. Um, tracing the steps of Abraham, Jacob, and Jesus on Israel's most famous route. And this is going to be uh, one of the two hosts is Mike Mike Pompeo, who was a former head of the CIA, Secretary of State, a number of other things. And I've met, had luncheons with him a couple of times, and I get a lot of his personal emails. And, uh, you know, he's a, got a strong... Um, Strong Christian testimony, so he's he's pretty solid. So that that is something uh, that you all should try to make time for. A lot going on, but this this is nothing compared to probably what we ought to be doing. You know, there's always more to do in the Christian life, which is so important for us. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we open God's word this evening, let's bow our heads together and make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to study your word this evening to think about uh, what you have written to us and how we should apply it. Father, we pray that we might be very open to application, that God the Holy Spirit would make it very clear to us how we need to apply what we're learning. You know, it's, it's so sad for all of us that so often we get so um, focused on understanding the word and the academics that we forget the application and the transformation that should come in our own spiritual life and the tremendous need for, for humility in each and every one of us. And, Father, we just pray that you would uh, make these things very clear to us personally and individually tonight as we study your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to get a little bit further into verses 12 to 18. Uh, last time we looked at this, the passage related to uh, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, looking at the issue of what is the role of works uh, in our eternal salvation and noted some of the problems there. And one of the things that I did in helping us understand the, what, how that verse should be translated uh, is to uh, go through a lot of context. Context is so important. It's like the three laws of, of real estate, location, location, location. It's context, context, context. Words get their meaning primarily for context. Just think how many times you hear somebody talk and you miss a word, but you can figure out what that word should be just by context. And and so meaning comes from context. It doesn't come by lo looking at a dictionary. All a lexicographer does, that's somebody who puts together a, a dictionary like, like Webster uh, or Collins or any of these lexicographers, is they look at all the ways in which people use words and then they categorize and classify them. So th all they're doing is writing down their observations of how people use words. People come along every now and then, and they'll see a new word in the dictionary. They go, well, that shouldn't be there. Yes, it should. People are using the word, and they're using it in these ways. And words change meaning over time because of usage. And you have slang and all these other things that come along, various idioms that develop over time. And so when we study a passage, we have to really examine context more than anything to get the, the understanding. When you start off with the wrong idea of what an epistle is about, then you're going to misinterpret significant words. Because a lot of times words can mean you know, they're, they're going to be on this end of their spectrum or that end of the spectrum. Every word has a range of meanings. And so if you think it's that talking about one thing 
then you're going to interpret on that edge of the spectrum on several words. Uh, for ex- and we looked at salvation as one of those words last time. And so if you think that the writer's talking about justification salvation, then you're going to translate certain things that way, and then you're going to be completely wrong. We have so many traditional interpretations of passages in the Bible that are related to the use of the words in the Old Testament for for save or the New Testament for save, and yet they have the idea more of deliverance from something or even healing from something than they do uh, justification, salvation. So let's remind ourselves of the three tenses or the three stages or phases of salvation. So we have phase one, justification. And that means that we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our sins are paid for. And that we have any number of things that are provided in that package. There are all these different facets. There's redemption. There is reconciliation. There is forgiveness of sins. There's the gift of eternal life. And I've pointed out there are some people who think, no, 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 no. You just have, One of them is the only true gospel. And that's just garbage. That is just terrible. Uh, anytime you believe Christ for justification, believe in Christ for eternal life, believe in Christ for forgiveness of sins, uh, you're, you're saved. And these other people just muddy up the water, and it's absolutely terrible that they have come along to do that. So phase one is justification. And be, once you're justified, then you begin to live a new life. You're born again, re- regeneration is a gift of life. You're made alive together with Christ. And then you begin to live, but those aren't. it's not a necessary uh, result. And that's the problem of lordship salvation, is they believe that, and this comes out of Calvinism, which gets it from going back to Augustine, who introduced a lot of determinism into Christianity that was part of his intellectual baggage from before the time that he was saved. And so you have to understand just the history of these translations, the history of theology, and how those those people who held certain theological systems were translating the text to fit their theological system. And you always have to go back back to the to the uh, beginning. So spiritual life uh, cannot take place unless you're born again first. But it is not a necessary inevitable result because it comes only by the word of God. We are to desire the uh, the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that we may grow by it. We grow by the word. But if all somebody's given is the information needed for eternal life and to be saved, justified, and they're not given any any uh any knowledge, any information about spiritual growth, and then they die, there, there's not going to be any fruit because there was no, there was no fertilization. There's no w- nourishment for their spiritual growth, but they're saved. They're going to heaven. And then uh, we have the spiritual life, and then phase three is glorification. So in phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire from spirit, because we're spirit, spiritually dead. In phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. We are being saved and will be saved in the, 
in the future, which is our uh, glorification. So we have to separate those three. Now, in Philippians 2.12, in this uh, new paragraph that begins in verse 12 and goes down through verse 18, probably most of your English Bibles will see that as as the paragraph. There's a couple of uh, versions that will make 12 and 13 a paragraph and 14 through 18 a paragraph, and those are various interpretive decisions made by a translator. But uh, I checked five different editions of the Greek New Testament this afternoon, and every one of them paragraphs this as 12 through 18. And that's based on certain internal considerations and certain grammatical considerations based on structure that, that we don't really need to get that far off in, into the weeds. So there's a conclusion brought here, therefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which we saw last time. It's not that the Holy Spirit takes over and makes the decisions for you. He brings scripture to mind. He influences you. That is the best, best word. I remember uh, when I was uh, in high school, I think, and, and um, I didn't even know who this guy was at the time, but there was a pastor's conference, one of the first pastor's conferences back at Baraka Church, and um, uh, Pastor Theme was talking about the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And somebody asked the question, well, wouldn't a better word for it instead of control, which, emphasize, which implies uh, taking over volition, that it would be influence? And he agreed. We had many conversations about this many years later. The guy who asked that question was some upstart guy right out of Moody Bible Institute called Jim Myers, I found out later. So, but influence is a much, much better word uh, because we make the decisions. God doesn't override our volitional responsibility. We have to make the right decisions. The Holy Spirit's just going to bring to mind the doctrine that we should apply, but we have to apply it. Uh, so God works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And then he says the next command is do all things without griping and arguing, that for the purpose that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, which is experiential sanctification, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, and that should be a participle of means we get that way, by holding fast the word of life. Be steadfast, hold fast to the word of life. Uh, that needs to be our priority, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So we see these two commands, work out your salvation and do all things without griping and arguing. Those two go together. And so um, it's, paragra- it's seen as two paragraphs. That's how the New King James saw it. But I think it's, I, I would go with the Greek text that this is all part of the same paragraph. So there's a the conclusion that comes out of what's been going on before. We I pointed this out last time that therefore in 2.12 uh, tells us that it's drawing a conclusion from the illustration of Jesus and his um, humbling himself and being obedient to the point of death. Obedience sometimes costs us something. 
And uh, we try to avoid that by by trying to control the situation, which is part of our sin nature. But this uh, illustration in 5 through 11, as I pointed out last time, is of the commands in 4, 1 through 4, and that began with the therefore and took us all the way back to the beginning uh, of, the, of the main body of the epistle, starting in verse 27. Now, we saw last time that this is the third use of the word salvation, and in the prior two uh, uses, it would seem that it would relate to temporal deliverance from a situation, and so that fits this uh, passage as well into 12, that it should not be uh, translated as working out your own salvation uh, based on the usage of the word kat ergazomai, uh, it doesn't mean to work. We look at various passages like Romans 4.15 uh, because their law brings about wrath or produces wrath. That's the main idea in Kater Godzimai. It's not working. It's producing something. Uh, Romans 5.3, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That's how it's translated in New King James and other translations. Romans 7.8, uh, taking opp- but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, sin produced in me. Uh, Romans 7.13, again, sin was producing in me something. So this is the idea. So when we take that over to Romans 2.12, instead of translating it, work out your own salvation, a better translation is you are responsible to produce your own deliverance. It's God who's going to be working when you're walking by the Spirit, but you have to make the volitional decisions uh, to produce your own deliverance with fear and trembling. You have to decide, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to apply the word in this situation. Or, no, not today. I just want to do what I want to do. We have to be a little honest with ourselves at times. So this uh, takes us back to those uh, three stages of salvation and that we're, we're delivered for spiritually, but we're also delivered. And so in this situation, <coughs> what we have is the deliverance is related to, I pointed out last time, is related to the main commands related to unity. It's part of, it's part of the second stage of spiritual growth, phase two, but it is related to specifics in this text. And I went through numerous passages last time showing that unity is the big problem. And unity is a problem because of what? The orientation of my sin nature and your sin nature is that it's all about me. You just think it's all about you, but it's all about me. And that's what we say to one another. We never verbalize it. But whenever we're getting at odds with somebody else, somebody in the family, somebody we work with, somebody we know, it's always because they're not doing it our way. And the, the modern term for that is so you talk about somebody, they're very controlling. I like the old way better. They just always have to get their own way. It's selfishness. It's being self-absorbed. It's not working together with other people. It's when you're con- trying to control other people, get your own way, that's your sin nature. And we've got to deal with it. And it's my sin nature. We're all that way. That's our trend. 
So we went back and looked at the context last time. Now I want to broaden it. When we talk about context, there's a, there, there's a lot of contexts, actually. One context is what we're talking about here, and that's the literary context. So uh, one passage we're looking at, Philippians 2.12, is in the literary context of uh, 127 down through 4.9. That's the literary context. The immediate context would be uh, just the verses from, let's say, 2.1 uh, down through uh, 2.30. That would be the more immediate context. And if you're looking at specific words within the passage, uh, then you'd have to look at maybe just the three or four verses uh, surrounding it. But there's another context. Remember, a verse has a context. A verse is a context, and what we're going to see coming up is that verses 14, 15, and 16 are one sentence. That's three verses, one sentence. So each verse is part of a context of a sentence. The sentence is part of the context of the paragraph, the paragraph is part of the context of the body of the epistle. This epistle is in another context. When did the, when was this epistle written? It was written while Paul was in prison. There are four prison epistles. Okay, let's remember this. This is a little back, going back through a walkthrough. How, how do we understand Paul's life? He has three missionary journeys, and then there's a fourth journey, which is when he uh, takes the ship to Rome, and he's shipwrecked. That's the fourth journey. At the end of the first journey, he writes how many epistles? One. Very good. At the end of the second one, how many does he write? Two. At the end of the third one, you ought, if you can't guess this, well, at the end of the third one, he writes three. And at the end, and and during the prison epistle, after the fourth journey, he writes four. Those are the four prison epistles, and they are what? Philippians, and Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the four prison epistles. Now that means that what Paul is writing in Philippians, and what Paul is writing in Ephesians and Colossians are going to have some similarities because he's writing them all in his own personal context of being under house arrest in Rome, and he's dealing with these Greek-speaking, Greek-background people, so their, their cultural baggage, the cosmic system that inhabits their thinking, is pretty much the same. And he's trying to get across to them the same basic ideas of how they are to live as new creatures in Christ. And as I was starting to work through this this afternoon, and what I'm going to end with in about 35 or 40 minutes is what I thought I was going to be teaching tonight. But the more I started looking at this, I thought, you know, this is just really important to understand that the context of Philippians is the is the context of Ephesians, because Paul's writing them, but we don't know which one he wrote first. And many people believe he wrote Ephesians very close to the time he wrote Colossians, because there's tremendous similarities between the two. But there are some similarities here that I really had not seen before uh, until today. So I want to go back and look at look at that. 
So let's go back to the beginning of the body of this epistle, which is in Philippians 1.27. And in Philippians 1.27, as I have translated it, Paul says, only let the way you live your life be life only let the way you live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ or be worthy. I think I, I, I worried about that all day. It didn't just sound right. Only let the way you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There should be a B in there. Only let the way you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you, but let's not talk about the rest of it. Let's just stop there. We are to live our life in a way that reflects glory upon God, showing the importance and significance of God. So this word worthy, I put up here on the screen, it's axios. And it means to walk in a manner worthy of or that's suitable or it's deserving of something that's been done for us. In other words, it's an, to live worthy is an act of gratitude to what God has done, not to get something from God, but because God has done so much out of gratitude, we're going to live in a way that's consistent with what he has done for us. But this word for living your life isn't the same word for, for walking. Uh, it's a, it's the, both idioms are, are talking about the same thing. So, so in one sense, it, it means the same thing as Ephesians 4.1 means walk worthy. But it doesn't use the word for walk. It uses this word polytuomai over here, polytuomai, right here. And it's an imperative of this verb. And you can see that the, uh, the first two syllables are, P, are polit, P-O-L-I-T. They come from the Greek word polis, the noun, which means city. And a lot of times when you shift into another form because of the endings, an S will go to a T. Let me give you an interesting little illustration. When you are talking with somebody who is a Sephardic Jew or someone who is schooled in biblical Hebrew, they will talk about the seventh day of the week as the Shabbat pronouncing the last letter as a T. But if you're talking with somebody influenced by Yiddish and Ashkenazi uh, pronunciation of Hebrew, the final T is pronounced like an S. So they'll say, good Shabbos. And if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, that's what they would say. So that that T and that S get in is changing in languages gets a certain uh, similarity. So we saw that when I was in um, when I was up on the uh, Friends of Israel encounter, which I'm going to talk about next week. Um, when I was up there, uh, we went to we were with Ashkenazi Jews and we were with Sephardic Jews, and you heard the difference in the way they pronounced several and several other words that occurred to me. I went, well, I wonder if they pronounce these words differently, and they did. So uh, that's that's just, that's the commonality of the, of the language. So this is the command here in Philippians 127. Now, we need to have a little background to understand this word, poly, this word polis, polituo. It has its basic meaning as related to uh, living honorably and virtuously as a citizen 
within the city. Citizen and city come from the same root. It has to do with, you know, our, our understanding the importance of citizenship. By the way, um, David, uh, Davis Hansen, what's his first name? What? Victor. I can want to say Vincent. Victor Davis Hansen has a book out on citizenship, and I think a special study with Hillsdale that I would highly recommend. I, I haven't had time to listen to it yet, but I, I've read over it, and it looks it looks very important. So as a citizen, you have certain inherent responsibilities. As believers, we have a new citizenship, and this connects with what Paul says in Ephesians 2. So we're going to get a little review of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, because that is exactly what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2. So we see this word, polytuomai, the verb, but we're going to see the noun form applied to believers in the church age in Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2.14, Paul is talking about this, this, that in the Old Testament you had Jews and you had Gentiles. The law was for the Jews, and the law was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. So he says, for he himself, meaning Christ, is our peace. Who does the our? First person plural. Who's the our? That's more than one group. Jews and Gentiles. He is our peace. He's bringing peace between Jew and Gentile. For he himself is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What was that middle wall of separation? That was the law that created a separation between Jew and Gentile. Because he abolished in his flesh the enmity, enmity that is the law of commandment. See, he explains it in verse 15. That enmity between Jew and Gentile was based on the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And so by abolishing that in his flesh on the cross, he created in himself, in Christ, that key principle in Ephesians, in himself one new man. From the two, thus making peace. Now that's horizontal peace. Peace between Jew and Gentile occurs at the when we trust Christ as Savior. We are Jew and Gentile become one in one new man in the body of Christ. Now that's important because the next time you have the phrase one new man or new man is in, in Ephesians uh, four around verse nineteen. That that the old man we we have put off the old man and we have put on the new man. Well, the new man is what the new man is who we now are in Christ. So he created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace horizontally between Jew and Gentile, for the purpose that he might then reconcile them both in this new man to God. That's the barrier between of sin that is between man and God. So his purpose now is to reconcile them both to God in one body. So now we're one new man and we're one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. What's the enmity? Well, that goes back up here to verse 15. He abolished that enmity, which is the middle wall of separation in verse 14. Okay, so... Uh, one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. Then verse 18, for through him we both, who's the both? Now it's believing Gentiles and believing Jews. So that through him both, because they're one new man, one new body, have access by one spirit to the Father. There's this inherent unity now in the body of Christ. What's the problem in Philippi? A lack of unity. See, the foundation is laid much more detailed in Ephesians. Now, therefore, he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You being you Gentile believers are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. And that's the word sum palites. Sum just means with. It's the preposition for with, but it indicates something that's combined now. You are together citizens. Polites meaning citizens. Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That saints and members of the household of God is clearly the church age believers. It's not, doesn't include Old Testament, Old Testament believers. The rest of the chapter says that they're built on the foundation of the apostles. That starts with New Testament apostles and prophets. If it had been prophets and apostles, it would have been Old Testament, New Testament. If it's apostles and prophets, it's New Testament. New Testament had apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets were given to the church, Ephesians 4.11, along with evangelists and pastor teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So it's a new building. See, it's the new household of God in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what do we have? We have one new man, one new body, fellow citizens, one household, one new building, one temple. That's all describing this new entity of the body of Christ, which was which began on the day of Pentecost, when there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That unity is what is established by the Holy Spirit from the instant of salvation. Earlier in chapter, I mean, later in chapter 4, he talks about maintaining the unity, not creating divisions. So this is, this is the foundation. Now, remember what happens. Well, one more thing is when we look at this, we have one new, bot, one new man, one new body, one, one household, one new building, one new temple. The emphasis is on one. And then chapter 3 just develops this out more. There are no commands that come up in chapter uh, in chapter 3. The next time you have a command is in 4.1. Now, it, walking worthy is, is to walk worthy. I, I exhort you to walk worthy. That uses an infinitive, but it's an imperatival infinitive because of the, the grammar. So that's your first command that we are to walk worthy of the calling. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like Philippians 1.27, doesn't it? That we are to live in, be a good citizen in, in our new, new, this, our, our new, and walk worthy of that new citizenship and our new position in Christ. So let me back up a minute. So we have this word here. We're fellow citizens. So 
we have this word used in Ephesians uh, 2.19, and that connects to Philippians 1.27, to live like a good citizen. So this isn't something that's totally different. This connects these two epistles and the content of these two sections to be talking about the same thing. And so it, it illuminates what's going on in Philippians chapter 2, and later it will illuminate chapter 3 as well. So we're to walk worthy of the calling. Now, I'm going to review what I taught on that, that we walk worthy of the calling. So uh, the verb is peripateo, which means to walk, and it is, again, an imperatival infinitive, uh, and it describes the day-to-day life of the Christian, the Christian way of life, walking step by step. That we are, um, we are exhorted to walk worthy, and the word worthy, again, is the same word we have in Philippians 1.27. And we find this concept again and again, that if you're a believer in Christ, you are now a new creature in Christ. You're a new citizen in the heavenly body of Christ. And you need to live like it. You need to think like it. And all my life, I run into believers, and they have this problem and that problem. They have problems with relationship. They have problems at work. They have problems with government. They have problems getting along with some people. And you know what? It's because they're arrogant and self-absorbed. They want to control everything around them. And they want to be the one to determine who does what. And guess what? That's just your sin nature. You're not walking worthy. You're not walking like a citizen of heaven. You're walking like a citizen of the world. So we're not to live different. We have a different calling. We have a different responsibility. And worthy is used again and again. Paul tells the Thessalonians. This was in his at the end of his second journey. He wrote how many epistles? Two. What were they? First and second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, he says, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. What I just did a few minutes ago was to exhort and charge you. Get off the dime and quit acting like an unbeliever and act like a believer. Quit responding and thinking like an unbeliever and respond and think like a believer. Why? that you would walk worthy of God. See, he's exhorting, comforting, and charging every one of them, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy or in a manner consistent with your new identity. Most Christians still think their identity is in Adam from the way they act. And a lot of churches do. They're going woke, and they're letting homosexuals and women be preachers and pastors, and it's just insane. Ephesians 4.1, uh, back there, we are to walk worthy of that calling. This is the word klesis in the Greek, and it's the calling. This has to do with a vocational calling. This is, we often use it this way that, well, somebody say, well, I, I'm just not called to that job. And we, we've used this for, for centuries in English that it refers to having a certain giftedness or a certain vocation or calling to be something to do something. Colossians 1.10 uses it, that you may walk worthy again. 
of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.11, worthy of the calling. Second Timothy 1.9, worthy of a holy calling. It's a distinctive calling. It's a vocation. Uh, this is a new responsibility. You're called to a relationship with Christ in a new, with a new citizenship, with a way of life that should characterize your new position in Christ. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Again and again and again, there's these references to your new identity. So in each of these passages, the calling is specified by an article in about 90% of them, which emphasizes the identity of it, the significance of drawing attention to that aspect. Second, it's a genitive noun which supplies the standard or measure to which the adverb axios worthily points, walk worthy of the standard of the calling. It's identifying what the standard is, that God has standards. And when we are operating on our sin nature, and you go read uh, Galatians 5, uh, 17 to about 20, and you'll get a list of various sins. And if those characterize your life from bitter, bitterness, anger, resentment, divisiveness, <coughs> <coughs> things like that, then that means you're operating on your sin nature. Nothing you do is going to come out and be fruitful. So we have to learn to work. That's the new standard. Now, Marcus Bart, who has a commentary on Ephesians, makes a clear statement. He says the noun clasis, calling, refers to the position of status, honor, and responsibility. When we have this calling, it's a new responsibility to live differently, to think differently, to live up to our new position in Christ. Third point, thus it emphasizes the basis for the command to walk. That is, move forward from... Excuse me, move forward from the understanding of who we are in Christ, what we have been given in Christ, which both summarizes our wealth in Christ, described in the first three chapters of Ephesians, which is now shown to be the standard we must aspire to in our daily lifestyle, conduct, way of life, thinking, and worldview. It's our conduct, our lifestyle, how we think, how we act, how we treat other people, how we respond to other people when we perceive that we have been treated unjustly. We are to treat even our enemies in love, in kindness, and gentleness, and not react in anger and frustration, bitterness, and resentment. Uh, this is who we now are. We have a different lifestyle, a different conduct, a different way of life, a different thinking, and a different worldview. We don't vote for certain candidates because of our worldview and because they don't hold the correct worldview. And we live in a world today that is becoming increasingly hostile and antagonistic toward anyone who holds to, and the broadest term is a Judeo-Christian worldview, that there are moral absolutes in the world uh, based upon the divine institutions, individual responsibility, responsible choice, number one. Number two, marriage between one man, one woman. Uh, number three, family. Number four is uh, human government. 
that government is limited government. It has limited responsibilities defined by God, not by man. And five is nations and respecting borders, something that this administration that we have and almost everyone before back for several decades has violated. They do not protect us as they're supposed to protect us. And then Israel is the sixth one because anyone who blesses Israel is going to be blessed. That applies to anyone, believer or unbeliever, even a Muslim nation. If Saudi Arabia is going to go into a treaty with Israel and start blessing Israel, then God's going to bless them because they're blessing Israel. And they'll probably get blessed by getting Israel to protect them if they get attacked by Iran. So 1 Corinthians 7.20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. There it's talking about an individual vocation. Like if you're working as a tradesman, then you need to stay in that job, Paul is saying. If your calling is to be a, um, a tinker, then you should stay in that job. If you are a cobbler, you are to stay in that job. If you are... Um, if you are a traveling peddler, then you are to stay in that job. That's, what he, that's how he's using that term. So David Lowry, who was one of my Greek professors at Dallas, uh, I think I had him for Ephesians, says that likewise a Christian's vocational situation is a matter of little consequence. Uh, what, and he goes on to say in the last part, what matters is that every Christian should realize he is Christ's slave and needs to render obedience to him. So we come to Ephesians 4.17, and this is where uh, Ephesians 4.1 said, walk worthy of, of, the, uh, of your calling, walk worthy of your calling. Ephesians 4.17 says, well, that means that you shouldn't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. Your lifestyle shouldn't be like the pagan unbelievers around you. Your lifestyle needs to be very different. Oh, well, I may be taken advantage of. And your point is? Let's see. Who do we know in the Bible who was taken advantage of because of their humility? Maybe it was Jesus. And he went to the cross. We have to think about these things. The reason we don't want to think about them is because we're just too arrogant to think about it. We don't want to be, have our toes stepped on by the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have not so learned Christ, but if indeed you have heard him and have been taught him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, when we get to verse, uh, which is where I thought we would start tonight, when we get down to verse 15 and we see that word in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, crooked and perverse are the characteristics of the lie. And so one of the one of the things that we have to investigate is what it, what is the contrast between the lie and the truth in scripture. Uh, Satan is the father of lies. And so that's that's our start. Um but we have been taught the truth in Jesus. It's absolute. There's no wiggle room. We go on in that that section in Ephesians 4 as we we learned it that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. that The reality is, I, I didn't get that direct, correctly translated, that you have already put off is the way it should read, that you have already put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which is our identity in Christ, 
which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And we're to be renewed, that is spiritual life, sanctification, be renewed in the spirit of your thinking. Go back to Romans 12 too. We'll get there eventually. And that you put on the new man. That's a bad translation, that you have already put on the new man. When you trusted Christ as Savior, see, before you were saved, you were either on team Gentile or team Jew, and you were in Adam. But at the instant of salvation, you took off that team jersey that you had before, and you put on a new team jersey, the team church. And you're now in Christ. And on the new team, you have new standards of behavior, and you have a new contract. And it's not a breakable contract, but if you're going to really get out there and play in the game, you've got to, you've got to maintain the contract. You've got to be obedient to it. So uh, this is what Ephesians 2.15 says. He created in himself one new man from the two. Okay? So then verse 25 goes on to say, Therefore, and I'm going to go down to verse how I've translated it below, for this reason, because you have already put off the lie, then why do you still live according to the lie? I can't tell you how many Christians are. And I get together with pastors, and they say, well, maybe 2% of the people in my congregation really have paid attention to me or are trying to apply everything. The rest of them just think they are, and they're living in self-deception. That's a common belief among most doctrinal pastors. And I understand that. You know, I saw that in seminary. You know, seminary students, we're all fallen. And you get a bunch of seminary students that are in their mid-20s to early 30s their academic knowledge is about a thousand times ahead of their actual spiritual growth and maturity because they're young. So we have already put off the lies. So we have to quit living like unbelievers. It all ties back to that command to do not walk like the rest of the Gentiles. But we are to speak the truth with the neighbor. Now, we've gone over that a lot the last uh few Sundays in Ephesians uh, Ephesians 4. For this reason, because you have already put off the lie, let each one of you speak truth. It, it doesn't have an article in the Greek, but that emphasizes its quality. So that's what we are to do. It's a contrast between the lie and the truth. So we have to really investigate this because the one who's walking according to the truth is also walking according to light. And when we get it down into... Uh, Philippians uh, 4.15, we are to shine as light. You can't shine as light if you're walking in darkness and if you're walking according to your sin nature and if you're self-absorbed and arrogant and mad at everybody. So truth is that which comes from the 66 books of the Bible. So the lies, the devil's worldview, it denies the creator-creature distinction, and the individual tries to live independently of God and God's standards. Now, before we go back to Philippians, I just want to remind you of the characteristics that we see in Ephesians 4.1. The person who is walking worthy of the calling is characterized by lowliness and gentleness. Now, that's basically humility, and gentleness, that's what those words mean. In, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for an arrogant is somebody who thinks too highly of himself, and a person who is humble thinks lowly of himself. The words have that, that literal meaning. 
Uh, we have to, we are to strive to maintain the unity, not to strive to get it, but we are unified in Christ positionally. We have to work to maintain it because the sin nature is trying to drive us across, uh, uh, drive us apart. And notice the emphasis on unity in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So we are to walk and we are to, I skipped one important thing, putting up with one another in love in Ephesians 4, 2. So what is the way of life for our new identity, the new standards of this new citizenship? This is how we are to produce this, uh, produce that which is consistent with our salvation. Verse 12, uh, each individual producing their own deliverance with fear and trembling. So in Ephesians 4, it's characterized by humility and patience in Ephesians 4, 2a. It's characterized with putting up with one another in love in Ephesians 4, 2b. It's characterized by working hard to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why? For, because there's there's this inherent unity, one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So what is humility? It is not me first. Humility is I'm here to serve you. You're not here to serve me. So you can always tell the person who's not humble because they're going to blame others for what's going on. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Look at what they've done to me. I don't care what they've done to you. 99% of the time, you're right. They did something that was unjust toward you. But that doesn't justify you in retaliating in bitterness, anger, and resentment and divisiveness. Biblical love for one another and anger cannot coexist. If you're angry at somebody else, you're not love is not arrogant. That is one of the first descriptions in First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse four. Love is not arrogant. It's not self-absorbed. Then, when we get over to Philippians one twenty-seven, what do we see? That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Saying the same thing there that Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. So in Philippians 2, we're to have humility and patience. In Philippians 2, 2 and 3, we're to put up with one another in love. We are to have the same love is the way Philippians 2, 2 puts it. Third, we are to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians, but we're not to do anything through self-centeredness, only in humility in Philippians 2, 3. And then fourth, uh, in Ephesians, Paul talks about one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And in Ephesians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. So you see the similarities? Paul's talking about the same issues in both places. And he talks about them in Colossians also. And the reason he does that is because every one of us as Christians has this terrible problem with that sin nature. And we let that dominate too much, and it's destructive, self-destructive. So the second command, all of that kind of relates back to the first command that I talked about, which is that uh, in verse 12, that we are to individually, each one, uh, produce our own deliverance. That means we have to apply doctrine. 
We have to apply what the Word of God says. We can't just think, oh, my, I have so many notebooks. I've gone to Bible class for 50 years. I know all this. But you're not, you're not living it. It hasn't changed you internally. So we're to do all things without complaining and disputing, without griping, complaining. The word trans, uh, complaining is gagusmas. Griping, complaining, grumbling, expressing disconnect, discontent. And then disputing is the word uh, dialogismos, where we get our word dialogue, but it means arguing and bickering. So we're not to gripe and bicker and argue about things. So, well, well, if I don't fight for what's mine, so did Jesus fight for what's his? Back in if, back in Philippians, where he says, it, though he was in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped after, to be equal with God. Did he say to the Father, you know, I... I I'm going to lose what's mine. No, he didn't. Did Jesus say, I'm going to be a victim? They did all the bad things, not me. Why do I have to do this? See, that's that's the opposite of humility. That's arrogance and the sin nature talking. Philippians 2.15 says that this is for a purpose. We have to set aside these sinful activities and way of thinking, self-centered ways of thinking, for the purpose that you may become blameless and harmless. Now, the Greek word translated become, it should be translated become because it's the idea of changing to become what you're not. And so we are to change. That's the process of spiritual growth. That's experiential sanctification, to become blameless and harmless. We are children of God, but now we're to become blameless and harmless. So as children of God, we're we're without fault so that we're blameless. That's the idea of these words here. You have the, they're very, uh, very uh, close in meaning, synonymous. Uh, Amemptas, akarios, that means unmixed. It's not a mixture of evil and good or, and, and amomas, which means unblemished, spotless, or blameless. Most dictionaries will define it as blameless also. So they're very, very close in their meaning. So we are to become this way. And children of God without fault, without spot, without blemish, that's amomas here, in the midst of what? You have a crooked and perverse generation. So notice how I grade them out. It's the walking in darkness, crooked and perverse. Crooked is a Greek word scolios, where we get our word scoliosis, people who have a, a spine that is, is, uh, is bent. Often it produces uh, what, what's called a hunchback. And um, I remember um, uh, when I was a counselor, I had a kid that was uh, uh, very, had this very, really crooked back. And I also worked with a counselor that had this. Scoliosis, very painful. And that's what it means, crooked or bent. They're crooked in their, in their character because of the sin nature. And then diastrepho, which means they're perverted or corrupt. This is the characteristic of the lie of Satan, the father of lies. So we have to come back and talk about truth 
versus the lie. That's so important. How is the lie manifested today? So we, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So shining is the verb phino, which means to shine or to cause to shine, and lights is the word foster, or, and another form of it is phosphos, which is where we get our word phosphorus. So it is to illuminate something, to be bright. And so in the world is cosmos. So what a relationship to the world is, according to Romans 12.2, we are not to be pressed into the mold and the thinking of the cosmos, the unbelievers who are in Adam, but we are to shine as lights in the midst of that wicked and dark cosmos. So we have to quit living like we're still on Team Adam and live like we're on Team Christ. That can only happen by internalizing the Word. And so in my uh, amplified translation of Romans 12, 2, do not be pressed into the mold of acting and thinking like unbelievers, those who are still in Adam but be completely changed or transformed by the renovation of your thinking. Don't just think that because you can recite the eight categories of systematic theology and you can go through 15 points on the deity of Christ and 12 points on the humanity of Christ and you can give a 20-minute dissertation on exactly what Christ did on the cross in order to make you saved, that you change your thinking. And that you're not thinking like an unbeliever anymore because every one of us grew up in, a, in an intensely influential pagan culture that shaped us in many ways that we're yet to fully address in our life. And we have to identify what, is, what are the aspects of the lie that are still influencing me when I'm out of fellowship. So we are to be completely transformed by the renovation of our thinking so that our lives will be a display in the, um, in, in, in heaven to the angels and to mankind, demonstrating through our testimony that the will of God is good and acceptable and complete. So that is the function of our spiritual life. That is how we learn to be lights. And, and to uh, shine forth as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And the way we do it is starts to be exhibited in verse 16 by holding fast the word of life. That's where truth resides. So it's a matter of truth versus the lie. And so next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at truth versus the lie, and we're going to look at uh, walking in light versus walking in darkness. But that will be probably in about three weeks because uh, next week I want to give a review of what we're what we did in um, in Philadelphia and New York and New Jersey and talk about some some of those aspects relating that uh, as well to a lot of things that are important to understand the importance of being a missionary and evangelism which we're coming up on in various things and then the next week Mitch Glazer will be here on Thursday night and that will be no uh, Scott Stripling will be here 
And then the week after that, Mitch Glazer will be here on Thursday night. So it will be the um, second second week of October before we get back into Philippians. But there's a lot of really important things to learn from the next three weeks. So just think, well, we're not in Philippians, so I'm not going to be there. That's thinking like an unbeliever. Okay, get the point. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be focused on your word and teach us to shine a light in the dark corners of our soul where we uh, hide out our favorite ways of doing things because we think that's how we get real life is on our own, living like unbelievers instead of living like we are in Christ. And Father, it's not easy and it's just a long process but we need to um, we need to grow up and be mature, and we pray that you would uh, give us the humility to be honest with ourselves and to recognize that there's no person who hears me speaking tonight to whom this does not apply. We are all guilty in many ways, and we need to get past that. And it's just between uh, each of us and you. And so, Father, we pray that we have the the spiritual courage and fortitude to go forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.